Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this fascinating episode, I interview neuroscientist, professor of psychiatry and human behavior and diagnosed psychopath James Fallon on his incredible story, the neurological and genetic correlates of a psychopath and the role of nature versus nurture. In this episode, we explore the shocking discovery that he realized after years of studying the brains of psychopaths that he had the exact same structure and how with daily practice and intentional effort, he learned how to be a good guy. We really get inside the mind of a psychopath. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Life can be hard and it's easy to feel stressed, anxious and out of control. What if there was a way to take back control? What if there was a practical way to detox your brain? This is now possible with NeuroCycle, the first ever scientifically tested brain detox app shown to help reduce an anxiety and depression by up to 81%. Users are guided through a variation of audio and video brain exercises and mind management lessons every day. I'm excited to share some of the latest features in the app, including guides for children and parents, detailed feedback and recommendations, written guides through days 22 through 63 of the NeuroCycle, and an easy way to track your progress. There are over 500,000 NeuroCycle users worldwide, and the app has helped change thousands of lives, including people trying to find purpose in life, overcoming fear, better sleep, improved relationships, managing intrusive thoughts, depression and anxiety, and so much more. NeuroCycle is for everybody. No matter who you are, what you've been through, what you do, you have an incredible mind and brain that is always on and needs to be managed so that you can live your best both mentally and physically. This app is designed for individuals, couples, families, businesses or corporations, for everyone, everywhere. Join us by committing just a few minutes a day and see how your life is transformed. In just 63 days, you will have begun rewiring your brain for a happier and healthier life. Download the NeuroCycle app today and start changing your life one thought at a time. Just look for NeuroCycle on the iTunes App Store or Google Play or visit NeuroCycle.app. The link and more information will be in the show notes. Professor James Fallon, I, I am really honored and excited to interview you today. Your work, I love your work. I'm as a fellow neuroscientist, I'm absolutely fascinated with your years of interesting research from stem cell research, work in psychiatry, work with sociopaths and psychopaths, and you have a phenomenal story. A lot of people know about you, and I'm very, very, very honored to have you on the podcast today. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you, Carolyn. Wonderful. Well, before we start, can you tell us something about yourself? Just tell my, my listeners and my viewers about who you are. I mean, they've heard your bio, but it's always nice to hear it from the person. And tell us something that's maybe not in your bio. I know you've got such a, a great story. So, Well, I, I would say that, you know, I was always interested in biology and the mind and all of that. I, I never remember not thinking about it all the time. So I, it's not like I had to what am I going to do for a living? It's the same way I, my wife and I met and as a girlfriend. I never had, who am I going to marry? And I mean, I knew when I was 13 and I knew when I was five what I was going to do. So it was a natural sort of thing where, you know, it's one of those kids that's always out looking for snakes and tadpoles and 
in how things work, you know, how the, so that was always there. I, I didn't try to do anything. Just, I mean, many kids have this and it's a, it's a great thing. You, you don't have to worry about what you're going to do, first of all. And you don't have to be motivated because it's, it's self-motivating because there's an amount of things, you know, but not only in the, in, the, in the nanocosm of the brain and how that works, but, you know, beyond that, you know, to the six billion years of just amazing evolution and, and the whole cosmos. So, I mean, it's all, you know, it's, you try to get your, whole, your arms around all of it and really try to grasp it. And, and in part of that, you always, you know, it has a sense of, I, I don't know if it's spirituality, but religiosity, because I had obsessive compulsive disorder when I was young. And I was always obsessed with things that really had people worried, you know, when I was just before going into puberty. But it helped me because because I had OC, OCD. I didn't have obsessive compulsive personality disorder. I knew it was there was crazy thoughts, but I couldn't control them. And but I, you know, used that as it slowly went away. I still have it, but it just helps me finish jobs. I'm obsessive about finishing things. So it helps your you know, productivity. You know, also, after that, I went into about 10 years of panic attacks. And and this has to do, in my case, with temporal lobe serotonin dysfunction. And and it was a wild thing when I first got it was maybe 17. And I had to be taken to the hospital. You see my heart coming out of my chest. And I never got it when I was around people or anything. It happened by myself in the middle of nothing. So it really wasn't a generalized anxiety disorder, because I, I can get out and I always, even as a kid, could stand in front of hundreds of people and just start yapping away. So it wasn't, and I wasn't anxious about things or places, but it would just out of nowhere in the middle of the night or the day, it's crazy. So that was terrifying because you, you think every, that you're going to die within 30 seconds to two minutes. You're convinced. And I've had almost a thousand of these, about 800, 900 in my life. They've slowly gone away. And I know how to control them with a carotid massage to control my blood pressure and heart rate, which goes absolutely nuts. And it's always associated with this gloom and doom, and, and but a, a feeling of great angst. Now, as this was happening, I think I was able to take that. Plus, I also had some mild bipolar, right? And, and the, the psychiatrists I know insist that I, I'm a bipolar that's always up. You know, I'm never <laughs> down. I'm a, but bipolar is defined by the mania or hypomania in my case. And so, and, I, and it always gives you energy. So there's another thing, that mild bipolar, you know, really heavy bipolar, it's an awful thing with mania because then you really get psychotic or, or with the depression part. But the, the, the up part, I've treated as another friend because it, it gives me constant energy and motivation and a very positive feeling even though I can be obnoxious to be around. There's all this happy face, you know, happy. happy. And <laughs> but panic attacks really got me looking at sort of a very dark sort of part of fear and the universe and not existing, all this stuff that a lot of people get. But I got so many, it was just ridiculous. And so that's something that really helped me. And so I think what's not in my bio is that, you know, genetically, and as my two geneticists, one's a psychiatrist and another psychiatrist, looked at my genetics, they said, you probably shouldn't have been born. You probably should have been a stillborn. Oh, my gosh. Said, well, <laughs> well, yeah, nice, those are nice friends. <laughs> well, yeah, well, this is, you know, this, is, this is science friends, right? 
this is plenty to us, right? But they, they, they really said, you know, the interaction of all these genes, mostly monoamines, looks very lethal. And I said, well, in fact, my mother had uh, four miscarriages and stillbirths before I was born. So she had our oldest brother and then five years and then me. In between, there's all these miscarriages. So as a result of those miscarriages, I was treated by my family, which is a very large family on both sides, Sicilian and kind of like an English family and huge. And so I was treated like the golden boy, not for anything I did, but just because I lived, you know? And there's another thing where I have, I have kind of a funky genetics, and in some of it's unpleasant, but everybody's got stuff like this. But on the other hand, yeah, it's your, but it's mostly, I think, the attitude, the positive attitude that I didn't come up with. I think it's just naturally part of the problem, the wiring. And so each one of these I took as a gift and something to use to give me either drive or insight. And this has really helped. And also a breadth of interest. You know what I mean? And, that, that, and I hate to use spiritual, but it's religious, because I don't even know what it means. And I have no sense of duality, which is part of one of the psychopathic traits, is you have no sense of duality. And so the real sense of right and wrong, I don't appreciate, like most people, most definitely. And this is one of the traits that I have. But I, so I, but I don't, think dualistically either, right? Because I, I don't even get it. It's like a blind person seeing for the first time and you say, you know, you really don't see. And so I think each of these things, and there's about 10 of these, you know, I'm kind of wired for obesity, but it, for me, and my wife doesn't believe it at all. She just says you're a hedonist and you're, you know, you get lazy. So my weight goes up and down since I was about 21. After I stopped playing football wrestling, I was a, I did downhill skiing. I was, you know, was competition scheme. And when I, once I stopped that and we just did studying, then I really ballooned up and I lost weight. But each time I would go up and down almost 80, 80 pounds every few, every few years. This has been going on for my whole life. And I can lose weight easily, but I always put it back on. And I, but I just, I do love to party and be a hedonist. I love food and Cabernet and all that. So, you know, to me, I, I don't, I don't think I'm really genetically fat, even though I have the genes for it. I rather enjoy it. I enjoy the going up and going down. The problem with all of these traits is that it can bother the people around you, right? And it, so it doesn't bother, these things don't bother me so much, but it bothers the people around me because it looks so fractious and looks, and it could be upset when I get really fat. It's like, I'm kind of halfway to my perfect weight now. You know, my wife doesn't understand what that means, either do I, but I say that. And so, you know, for her, you know, you want to have a mate who's, was the thin guy, you know, the married, and then I, and I'm not, and I wasn't. But sometimes I am. Two years ago, I was. I was back to that guy. Now I'm like going up to Bloomsville. So anyway, I'm trying to give you. This is a very long answer, but it, I think the naturally positive attitude about all these things as challenges, things to overcome, and, and part of your toolbox, right? The part. Of it. So I think. Sorry for the long answer, but no, it's great. It's great. What health looks like for you may be completely different to what it looks like for someone else. There is no one size fits all. This is why I love that Noom takes a different approach to health and eating. The program is driven by a singular mission, to help as many people as possible live healthier and happier lives through behavior change. It's not just about looking a certain way or keeping up with society's ever-changing standards. Noom focuses on helping you become healthier so you can love your best life. 
whether this means having enough energy to play with your kids, do what you enjoy, or improve your mental and physical health. I enjoy the app's quick daily lessons, the information I learn about the relationship between what I eat and my health, and the flexibility of the program. Even if I miss a day or two, or go on holiday, New makes it easy to get back on track. I love that you get to choose your level of support from 5-minute daily check-ins to personal coaching. With their psychology-first approach, Noom empowers you to build more sustainable habits and behaviors. They use the latest in proven behavioral science to empower people to take control of their health for good. Through a combination of psychology, technology, and human coaching, their platform has helped millions of users meet their personal wellness goals. Noom is nourishing rather than restrictive. It doesn't believe in telling you what you can or can't eat. Instead, the program gives you the knowledge and wisdom you need to make informed choices that not only fit your lifestyle, but also help you reach your goals. Noom is specifically designed to help you find a sustainable way of eating that works for what you want and need grounded in science. They've actually published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles that inform users, practitioners, scientists, and the public about their methods and effectiveness. Stay focused on what's important with you with Noom's psychology-based approach. Sign up for your trial of today at noom.com slash drleaf. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash drleaf to sign up today for your trial. The link and details will be in the show notes. Because what I'm hearing you say, you know, as a mind researcher as well for 38 years, looking at this thing, this one, you know, you bring in nature, you bring in nurture, because I know that you, you have a tremendous respect for your mom and how she really helped shape your life and yeah. that kind of thing. So the nurture and then, but there's the I factor. I always talk about the I factor and, it, you know, it's, there's the third thing that I think is the most important component. And that's what I'm hearing you say. You've taken, you know, you've taken all this genetics and whatever and you've actually turned that into positive you've directed this energy very in a much, very positive yeah. way and you've achieved tremendous goals and you've actually fed back into the scientific research and helped people through directing what's who you are i think it's, it's fantastic hopefully. and i think you know some people it may be harder for other people for me i don't i just put my mind to something say i'm now going to do this and i always do it you know what i mean if i put my mind to something even if i Oh yeah, and it happens. And but it's not any, it's just a natural trait. You know what I mean? It's nothing I do. You know, it's just there. But the other thing you mentioned is, you know, because of these genetics, in order for them to really turn against you in a bad way, you need some early epigenetic stressors, right? Between birth or even before birth, up to two or three years old. So if you if you have a mix of genes that are are coding for let's say certain personality traits which could be extroversion introversion how aggressive you are you, the type of empathy you have all these things are genetically wired but you can change that the amount of them you know because yes epigenetics are, mm-hmm. yeah and you can because each of all those genes it takes about 15 genes or so for each trait it's not just one gene so you get a mix of these high and low acting genes one set from your mother once that you're from your father. So that mix, which is a random sort of mix, will determine your basic genetic personality type and, and drives and traits. But then there are regulators. Okay, many of the epigenetic effects are not on the genes, coding genes, but on the promoters, insulators, and all these all these substances that regulate that gene. And they're like brakes or accelerator on your car. So the car is like a gene, and you can increase it, slow it down, and everything. And those in a normal person will 
vary according appropriately to the environment. You know, sometimes you got to be angry. Sometimes you got to be aggressive. Not all the time. But if you are abused or abandoned early in life, you know, birth to two, especially birth to two, but also three and a little bit four. Well, these promoters get fixed. It's like putting a putting a brick onto the gas pedal. It's always on. So it's turned on at inappropriate times. I mean, you know, there's a sexuality group of genes, but you're supposed to know. It's supposed to be balanced like you use it only at appropriate times, right? Which, you know, determines the sociability of what you do. But if it's always turned on, it's completely inappropriate. Well, this is what happens. And so people are abused, you know, when there's trauma early, they what their adrenal gland releases is cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And that goes right to the frontal lobe, especially to the social and emotional parts of the brain up here. And that's where that cortisol will add a methyl group and fix those genes. And that's where the actual molecular epigenetic changes take place. You know, normally when, like if you get sick, if you get the flu, you get a temporary turning on of your immune cells and they get, you know, methylated. But after two or three weeks, they pop off and it goes away. So these come on and off. So this epigenetics occurs all the time, you know, through your life, but depending on your needs at the time. But this early epigenetic marks right after birth that especially affect, it's kind of a read of the hostility or kindness of the world around you. So if you're surrounded by hostility, you grew up in a really bad neighborhood. Well, you are faced with, you know, bullying, abuse, you see terrible things all the time. And your brain appears to get fixed by these, by the stressors so that you're then, the only way you can survive is by being one of them, right? And so this fixes you. If you're going to exist, you better be tough as nails. You better be violent. You better be reactive, impulsive, all these things. So it's it can be appropriate for the environment you grew up in. So whether like they're psychopathic or not or inappropriate depends on the environment you're in. It's not the same for, for each person or each environment. So at any rate, with those, it turns out when, when I was I was brought up, by not only my mother, but my aunts, especially on my mother's side, they all, you know, my grandfather had come from Sicily and lived on the streets in New York from the time he was 11, 12, 13, lived on the street, mm-hmm. really had to fend for himself. And when he finally met my grandmother, he met her, he was, a, he was, he was one of the things he did, he was, a, he was a court interpreter for Sicilian and Italians coming to America and all that stuff, and, or in court cases, but he was also a musician. So we've got a lot of musicians in our family, it's probably from him, you know? I'm not, but almost everybody in my family really, like, well, jazz musicians, stuff, not me, but anyway. And, it, and a lot of it's from him. It's, they have a natural sense of music. But at any rate, when he met my grandmother, she had come separately over from Sicily to New York just briefly and met him. He was playing a band. He was like a rock star, you know? <laughs> it, was like, it was like in that 1918 or 17, 16, you know, that's when they met. And he was never educated, and he told her. Is my grandmother? He says I want. He says I want to have a lot of daughters, and I want them all to go to college. His family never knew about college, right? But that was his goal, and he was one. Of, and he made it happen. So my mother and all my aunts, all of them went to college, and they all went to graduate school. Can you? I mean, this is back when this was amazing, just amazing. And they were all really smart and, and very funny. But they all started out kind of as teachers, and then went on to other business or whatever. And, but they all had a great insight, and they could read kids. And so my mother and my aunts, that matriarchy, 
was fantastic because they treated all of their kids, me and my brother and my cousin, uh, according to what that kid needed. They saw that they need. So it was a conspiracy of this matriarchy to make sure the kid is treated as an individual, depending on their read of what the kid needs. You know, some kids may need a smack in the head. Some, you know, are snowflakes. You gotta, so they knew this stuff. And we're just so brilliant about it. And also my father and my uncles and my grandpa, they were all added to this in a very kind, wonderful, and interesting way. And so I was raised by angels, really very smart angels. And I think because of that, all of this really severe genetic combinations I have, because the genetics read like a full-blown, you know, somebody very dangerous, right? And they knew this. And, you know, when I went up, when I w- went to school, grade school, and then junior high school, they said, keep this. They told my teachers, because they were teachers too. They said, keep this kid busy all the time, because if he gets quiet, he's trouble. There's going to be real trouble. And I was like, all the time, I, from the time I woke up until the time I went to sleep at 930 at night, every, you know, from grade school on to this day, I'm like working constantly, doing something in sports too. And it, so I think that insight, not of my own doing. This this is just being lucky to be born into a family. Yeah, into an environment that your your genes. So what I'm hearing you say is that the nature that you had was messed up, but the nurture was active, was kind of drowning that out and activating the good stuff, so right. that you could then the I factor could come in, that you could actually then have the the resilience to to utilize the good right. nurturing to go in the right direction. Because you are famous for your also for your work not only on stem cells but on psychopathy, and you've written that incredible book, The Psychopath Inside: A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. So I just wanted for a moment for my viewers and my listeners just to understand that you're building the story behind the book and the researcher. So you've literally been your own subject. I mean, it, and been subjects in it controls in other subjects, and, in, and you really have a deep understanding. <laughs> you know, you never make yourself your own subject. <laughs> and but you kind, like, but you kind of have been. You've been studying yourself for years, and well, you know, it, yeah, I mean, it was. It's just a big no-no. But nonetheless, it was. It happened so by chance. I had been my ex-students had become psychiatrists and neurologists. Uh, you know, they were medical students of mine but when I started. And they we got a PET scanner back in like 1988, 89, one of the first ones, a very high resolution. And so of all the things, a lot of the stuff we've done is on schizophrenia and, and, and bipolar addictions, all that. But they also, every month or two or three, would bring in a guy in manacles who was a, a killer, a murderer. A lot of times, you know, terrible, terrible guys. And all the police would show up, the SWAT team uh, at the medical school you know, roofs and everything with submachine guns. At any rate, they they brought them to me to analyze, you know, the anatomy, because I knew the connections of the brain and said, what's this? And I never paid much attention to it. It was one of many video games for me. You know, I never, I mean, I think the average person probably knew more about psychopaths and murders. It just wasn't a particularly, you know, it was like anything. I was never interested, but these were my students. So I started analyzing it. And, and there weren't that many over the years. I didn't see a pattern because I wasn't really into looking. Then several of my colleagues in, in 2005 sent me a ton of these. They're all murderers, different kinds impulsive murderers, brain damaged murderers, psychopaths, sociopaths, all these different types. I, I said, look, and send them to me, all the scans that I could read, right? All of these that I could. Uh, and try to impute or determine what the connectomes, that is, connected brain areas, 
that seem to be associated with all the different types. So I said, don't tell me. I said, throw in normals and schizophrenics so they fool me. Because, you know, that's one of, as you know, one of the rules is to keep, is make your analysis as blind as possible. Because even, with, you know, with scientists, you, you don't want to make up a story, but we're storytellers, right? In our visual system, we like narratives and stories. And any little hint in there that, oh, this is a psychopath. I got to look for a psychopath. You know, so you can't. So Colors the research. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said, just don't tell me. And I went through that and spent some time and, and analyzed them and found out there was like four very neatly separated, perfectly separated piles of scans. And it turns out, you know, the whole group that was normal, in which I can tell pretty quickly. Then there was a whole group of schizophrenics, and I knew the different schizophrenics because so, I've analyzed so many. And so there were schizophrenics, and then I knew the bipolars. And then there was this fourth group, which was a mixed bag, but at the base of it was, was what we call common mode. That is, if you draw a Venn diagram, what they all had in the center was the areas of the brain turned off that have to do with the moral reasoning, with impulsivity, with psychopathy. And and so that's areas that are over the eyes, the orbital cortex and the amygdala and insula, this whole limbic system, this emotional, social, emotional limbic cortex. And that was the pattern. And, 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 I, and I said, my God, there's something here. So I became interested, right? And then I started talking to people, saw my first chapter on this. I think it was the first to show the whole pattern, right? But, but I didn't follow it up because we we're doing so many other things, really. I didn't want to if you commit to let's uh, let's do psychopaths now, it's like five to ten years of complete commitment. So I didn't want to do it, right? It was like okay, here got you know somebody else who could do it better, and they did. But the basic pattern was there, so I saw that, and then I started talking about it. And I gave a couple of talks, and then from two thousand and five, six to two thousand eight, nine. At that time, at the end of that time, the TED people asked me if I wanted to give a talk, and I said, well, yeah, I have the stem cell story about the bias against adult stem cells because people wanted it. You know, the funders wanted embryonic stem cells, all this stuff, and about the bias in science. And they, oh, that's good. Do you have anything more interesting and personal? And I said, okay, I'll be, uh, and I shouldn't have done this, right? This was another mistake, but you lose your mind a little bit because you get into the story. And that story was, I said, look at, I got all these scans to look at. And at the same time, we were doing an Alzheimer's study on the genetics and the brain patterns of people with Alzheimer's to determine the missing gene, which we found. It's called TOM40. It's TOM40 interacting. So a very successful experiment, but we ran out of normals. So I recruited, out of desperation, my whole family, including myself. I said, well, let's do this. We'll do the genetics because we needed it to write the grant and the patents and all this stuff. You know, this is, this is the second thing you're not supposed to do. You don't worry on yourself and you don't get your family involved. But, you know, so I did that. And in doing that, when I was brought the results and I looked at it and the, and the technicians brought all these scans because I had all these murder scans on my, my table that I'm just going through and checking. And they bring in my family scans. It was a pile of these printouts, you know, with all the red color, the blue, you know, this is too active. This is not active enough. And all the differences with normals and all this stuff. And so I'm looking at that. I, you know, I went through and they all quickly, I knew that they looked pretty normal. So I was very happy. And then I got to the last scan and I, and I looked at it and I said, okay, guys, they're very funny. You know, the technicians, I said, you slip one of the psychopaths in here. I know what you're doing. You busted my chops and it's very funny. And they said, no, 
email list, one of your family members. I, I come on. I said, they swear to God. I said, check the machine, you know, computers, the machine, all that. And they came back, and they're both, and they said, we're not kidding this time. This is somebody in your family. So I said, so I had to break. I said, look at somebody in my family is, is dangerous walking around in open society. It's like a pure psychopath pattern. And so I had to break the code, you know. Yeah, break, break, the, the, break the double blind, yeah. When I broke that, I, I peeled back the name, and, and no name was on there. It was mine. So, <laughs> that was, was that in 2006, I think, that, that happened, wasn't it? Yeah. When you did that, yeah. To, yeah. yeah. Them to that, and then we followed up with the genetics. The same thing, and my, my all my brothers and my you know my wife and everybody had a mix of different genes. You know, high aggression, low aggression, high emotional empathy, low all these different things that people normally had to make them normal. And I got again to the last group of genetics. I said, oh man, it was the same thing because I had all the genetics of very all the warrior genes, extreme aggression. Zero genes. There's about 15 of them for emotional empathy. I had the genes for cognitive empathy, but not emotional empathy, which is usually what people want. That's what they think of empathy as this kind of, you know, when you're crying, I'm crying, you're happy. You actually feel what the other person feels, and it's what you want in a mate and a best friend. You move together. The other kind, this other major kind of empathy is cognitive empathy, which is, I know what's bothering you, I don't feel it. But I know what it is. That you know what people are feeling, but you don't feel it. And so I have a lot of that. And that would that explained why people from the time I was young, especially why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. Like my wife's friends, their girlfriends were always coming to ask me what they thought. They had problems because they knew I would never cry and I would just listen to their problems. And this has been going on my whole life, which is the listen to problems, I just never get emotionally involved at all. And this can be somebody very close to me. And, and, but I, I can give a sort of a clear perspective. Yeah, sort of analysis. And people always appreciated that. So when I got this years later, this is back in like 2008 now, almost 2009 with the genetics. And I said, well, here it is. And it, and it fit with the, my PET scan, which showed that the area of the brain that codes for cognitive empathy in the anterior insula and its connectome was very, you know, shining bright there. And all the areas having to do with emotional empathy was turned off. And so, so there were all these different uh, traits that went along with the genes, that went along with the brain pattern that said that I was 100% wired as a psychopath. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? One of my resolutions for 2022 is to treat myself like I would my best friend. And one way I'm going to do this is to spend more time doing the things that make and bring me joy, such as walking my two puppies or reading novels in the bath. Therapy is another great way we can take care of ourselves. Indeed, you don't have to be in a crisis mode to benefit from therapy. Therapy can provide preventative and protective strategies so that when things do get tough, you'll know what to do. It's one of the best gifts you can give yourself. And this month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. 
cleaning up the mental mess listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash drleaf. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash drleaf. The link and details will be in the show notes. So what we have here is a story of a brilliant scientist, neuroscientist, who spent years researching, who actually by default, literally by mistake, landed up in a study as a control and in the control, the very pattern that you'd identified through spec scans, through genetic analysis, etc., to to show that the different types of empathy, we can, there's the three different, four different types of empathy, you had the actual genes and the the parts of your brain where that were literally switched off. So you had the typical pattern of a psychopath. 100%. But And then you laid the whole foundation for our listeners in the beginning about how, as a child growing up, you had this incredible nurturing. So you were giving, painting a picture of even though biologically you have the pattern of a psychopath, your nurturing and your eye factor changed that. And you've a happily married man with children, very successful scientist, and you've actually channeled that potential dangerous psychopathic tendency into something very constructive and contributed tremendously to humanity. And almost by default that you actually did this because you were into stem cells and into other other areas of research. By mistake, you know, just a series of weird things. I mean, and part of that, that was a good summary, by the way. Carol, good, summer. good. Okay. And um, I need, I need, I need you to also just one more thing define for my listeners and then we can continue with the story because you're quite right. Scientists are stories and storytellers. So just define for us quickly, just so that they have a good understanding of what you're going to say next. Define us as psychopaths versus a sociopath. And then can we talk about the four types of empathy? So just very quickly, we can handle sure. that, which will then give them something to hang on to for the rest of your story. Yes. And, you know, in for psychiatric disorders, there's all different types. There's thought disorders, emotional disorders, there are addictions. So there's all these different, you know, too many, but that's how it goes. And, and one group are called the personality disorders. Personality disorders are different than regular disorders that sound like that. So if you have obsessive compulsive disorder, you have these compulsions that are crazy. You can't get them out of your head, but you know they're crazy. See, somebody who has obsessive compulsive disorder, personality disorder, they think that those are correct ideas. So the difference between somebody with these just regular disorders, which are completely annoying, and the personality disorder part of that are, are, are quite different because the personality disorders, they think that, oh, they, this is, these are correct. So somebody, one, one group of those personality disorders are called the cluster Bs. Now, the cluster Bs are the most obnoxious. And the main one is antisocial personality disorder, also sort of called psychopathy, and also histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder. These are the ones that are really dangerous to other people. You know, most of these disorders are bad, you're awful for you and maybe your family. But these, if you've got them, you're perfectly fine with them. You know, it's like, you know, there's nothing wrong with me. I mean, this is, I'm right, you know. I am the greatest, uh, you know, and or, or whatever those traits are. But you believe them, and these are, the cluster bees are the dangerous ones. So the main one that's the most dangerous, most associated with violence, murder, rape. But more than that, it's just somebody who's always manipulating people, always manipulating people. And it's a game for them, and it gives them pleasure. And so even if it has nothing to do with money or sex or you know, killing them, you're always messing with them. And every time you meet somebody, and you really can't control it at all, right? And this, I have this. I never try to do anything harm to people. I don't use it for anything, but I'm always on the make in this sense. And my wife always knew this. She goes, you're doing that thing again. 
Because what were their talent stories? I said, but the stories are true. She said, no, but you're manipulating these people. So she really knew. And it, and it kind of pissed her off because you know, I always go to a bar or party and always be surrounded very quickly by young gals, young women, and be telling them stories. Not because I, I look like I should be so to talk, you know, for young gal to talk to, but I had stories and they came off, came off as credible and very interesting and they were true. And so, but it would drive her crazy. Well, this is the thing is somebody like that. It, and it's really it's put her and other people off, but it, it happens completely naturally. Now, the other thing is I can read people's, because of this cognitive empathy, I can read what they're feeling and I can use that to get to work through, to be able to read them and then have them play my game. So that's the cognitive empathy versus emotional empathy. Cognitive empathy is more the seeing another perspective, whereas emotional empathy is feeling the other person's emotions. I'm really caring about them. For, so it comes across as being cold. And in, in, a, in a way, I am cold because I'll just do it, you know, do that and analyze, you know, if you will, friends or pe- people who ask me, because I can. And I think probably I get a buzz out of it. It's just instinctive. But I don't feel their joy or pain at all, really. It's weird. But you're able to analyze yourself, not you're able to self-regulate. You have enough self-awareness that you can actually analyze well, that you've got cognitive it, empathy, but not the compassionate or the emotional empathy. And you yeah. can actually see what you're doing. You're very aware of it. You know, once all this biological data, the scans and the genetics came through, then I had was analyzed, right? Psychiatrically analyzed. And a, a couple of psychiatrists, some of them really knew me well anyway. They knew all the stuff, the pranks I pull. So one of them summarized it in this way very briefly. So here's a guy has all the traits of a full-blown psychopath. All of them. He said, simply never acts them out. And I don't. You know what I mean? I don't act out what people would find, you know, the aggression or anything. I, would, I don't hurt a flea, right? I can get mad, but I can always control my anger. Nobody, you know, like you can't get to me, right? Sorry to interrupt you, but doesn't that go to the fact that your I factor, your you, you've overcome your biology. You've actually utilized um, your biology for good. Exactly. Probably that's true. And he, and this the one psychiatrist said he's never seen that in somebody that had all the traits, but could absolutely control it. And, and so, and it was curious, right? Now, which now, because I have no ill intent. I'm not mad at anybody, but also I have no reason to steal money. I have no reason to go out and pick up women or, you know, I, or, or, and I have a wonderful, so just so happens I have all these psychopathic traits, but I have a wonderful life. There's no need to, it'd be stupid. It's like, you know, these guys like psychopaths who do this stuff are well, complete losers. I mean, you have to do it. Can't you just play, go into a bar and, Tell stories or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. Channel it in the right direction. So you've actually got it. That in itself is a breakthrough, just the ma- how you've managed that. Because a lot of people will ask, and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, you know, can it be overcome? But you demonstrate that obviously the the, the factors were playing, the dice was rolled in your favor and that you had the, the nurturing. But there's people that, there are people out there that I bet you, if you go and do all the analyses, you're going to find they have the same combination of, of oh, psychopathic yeah. tendencies and they're not murdering people. They also have channeled that into to being leaderships. Yeah, borderline. Sorry to keep, you're asking great questions. I just want to answer them. No, no, go for it. And so there are, you know, most psychopaths don't kill or maim or rape or do any of that stuff, but they manipulate. They all manipulate, especially borderlines like me, is full-blown psychopaths. You know, that score like 40, 35 to 40, and 32 to 40 on a air test or on the PPP for regular people. Not, you know, they're very dangerous people, right? Some borderline psychopaths, I score under 30. So 
technically, I'm not a psychopath. I just get that close. I'm not, you know, that close. But apparently enough. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But then scales do have variability, so then yeah. things do change. So, yeah. So, so being lucky enough not to need to do this stuff, right? I mean, that's part of it, but also being brought up in a nurturing way. So I take all of those things, all senses of aggression, I turn it into, you know, how I play sports and how I play bridge and monopoly and scrabble. You know, I'm very aggressive and pain in the ass to play with because I have to win all the time. So there is that, uh, there's that residue there. Where, I wouldn't even let my granddaughter beat me in school. It's really, you know, it's bad. They're all good with it. They can all play. They're all great at this stuff. And, they, and they're all going to beat you. They're all going to, that's going to oh, be yeah. their goals to beat you. So, <laughs> And of course, I'm hoping for that, but I'd never let them win anything. You know, anyway, you, I mean, you can take that trade either way. But, you know, also, you know, when I, after this happened, I got analyzed. I asked to do this TED Talk. I gave that TED Talk uh, and talked about this. and. And that led to hundreds and hundreds of interviews and talks at uh, Google Zeitgeist and Google Camp and, you know, CNN, PBS. I mean, everything you can imagine. The only, the only news group, the only system that's never asked for an interview is Fox. They're the only ones. I mean, all over the world because I've done so many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. And a friend of mine who's a really very well-known producer, you know, you know up in L.A., he goes, well, he said, Fox, he said to them, because I, I do, you know, done interviews with the people that are, that do like medical stuff on Fox. They said, well, see to Fox, biology and medicine is like, what, what antibodies are coming out to treat this, you know, COVID, you know, it's yeah, all yeah, very yeah. practical sort of stuff. Not, yeah. what we're talking about not, not what we, we're talking about deep stuff. We're talking about That's right. stuff that is is very important to talk about because we have to also because it, it explains so much about human nature. And, the, and I think what's really appealing to people about you is the fact that you take your own story and you've turned that around into something that you can learn from and everyone can learn from. It's almost like you're fascinated with yourself. And I think people people love that. But it's also well, very, it's a, very narcissistic. Right. Yeah, it's it's also you you uh, not only so much that is that you've actually give people hope because it's in at the back of people's minds and that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. People are very drawn to whenever as you know negative things draw people's attention and I mean I have my own theory on why that happens but I'd love to hear your theory on why people are so fascinated with watching murder stories and listening to murders and yeah. focusing on why do people do evil stuff that absolute fascination. Can we talk a little bit about that and and I also well, yeah, want to talk I think, you know there's the let me take like a, an example of anybody who's seen the, the first Mel Brooks film, which is Mrs. Soulful and with Diane Keaton. And Mrs. Soulful, you know, he's, he's in for murder in this, in this jail in Pennsylvania back in the 19th century. And the wife of the warden, he falls in love with him and runs away with him. And it ends poorly. And it's this idea in storytelling that people want to be a lion for a day. And the lion for a day, and, and this attracts women, because they, you know, a lot of times 
you know, regular normal women, uh, women are normal, they all have, they're all different, but nonetheless, they want to lead like a righteous, productive life of a family, but in the back of their mind, they all want to have that devastating affair, that one day where they do something so crazy. And a lot of times it ends poorly, right? So they want to be aligned for a day. That drive for freedom, if you will, and to be crazy, and, and it's partly sexual, but it's partly just breaking away any shackles whatsoever. I think that's part of the draw, especially for, for young women and even older women. That, that really, a, that plays into it because they want to have that one day where they hope they don't get caught. And it, but it, it, it doesn't end well too many times, you know, but, and so that's not a, a great a positive thing, but it, I think it's one of the drivers where people are fascinated. Most of the people who are fascinated by far are young women. So be, teenage women, I always get calls from groups of teenage women doing papers up through about 35. And they're just fascinating with the psychopathy and they watch all these shows. They know more about them than I do. I mean, I'm an advisor on some of these shows, these crime shows, right? and they know more than I do. I really do. So I, I say, you tell me. And But, you know, I work with the writers and the producers to try to get it right, you know, to try to get these characters, which I do with Brian Cranston once at Soho. You know, he and I talked about how I must have about a thousand people with about these characterizations of bad guys because he had just finished Breaking Bad. Anyway, he was great about it. Very, really cool about it. So anyway, so that's a simple answer to one of the, what draws us to it. But also in everybody, we all have those genes which drive us to break free and to experiment sexually and, and be you know, angry. And to, so everybody has the drive. And they feel it. And that, how, do, how do you feed that monkey? Because most people are, have, they're inhibited. They say, I'm not going to do it. But I'm not going to just take control. But this builds up, and it's always in the back of their mind. Well, how do you safely process that and, and deal with that? Well, you watch a lot of murder films and murder, you know, you're very fascinated with killers. I mean, awful people. And I've dealt with these, and all these rapists and pedophiles I've talked to, I mean, it's unbelievable. But there, there is a drive to get close enough to it, to, to, to smell it. You know what I mean? But be safe. And, then, and of course, film, TV is a safe way to do it. And you can still sort of, it's like seeing a scary movie. You can still get that buzz, like in, you know, epinephrine, and, and the, uh, the epinephrine buzz, the norepinephrine buzz, but stay safe. And so just for a moment, you're reliant for a day. So I think that's a part of this. And that's for, for male and female. Would you say that that's male and female? Well, you know, males are sort of encouraged to be naughty early, you know, more than young girls. That's sort of social processing for thousands of years and where they're raised. Now, the boys have the same sort of things and everything, but they're allowed to go further, right? And they're allowed to experiment. And everybody knows that the boys and men are stinkers, basically. <laughs> and, you know, if they do it a little bit, okay, don't do that again. For a girl, you know, she get pregnant or she can get really in trouble and it could end her life or, you know, end her productive life. Well, a guy that's always like, well, okay, we'll give you one more chance type of thing. We see there's less forgiving for women. So I think for guys, there's the same process going on. But guys can have, in growing up, they can get closer to it and sort of become involved with that. And in fights and in sports that are really, some women do this, of course, but I mean, on on the whole. And and, it's, and so it can always be sort of supercharged and then dealt with and released by the behavior 
or in the case of many people watching film and getting all, you know, amped up and nervous and crazy. <laughs> and so I think that's part of, part of the attraction. But it's also that inner drive, like, I know I'm a bad girl inside. I know it. And I want to know more about this. So how do I, it's making me crazy. And they don't realize that everybody's got that, right? They're having that, that thought. And so that the devil inside is, is how do you process with that? How do you deal with it? And I think the fascination with serial killers, with the shows, the movies and everything is a way to deal with that. Interesting. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's inside of us and it's a way of processing by watching this. Now I would come at it from, would you like my point of view? Absolutely. Yes. So as from the mind work I've done, I come at it from another angle that the, that the empathy and being wired for love for want of a, another term is our norm. So when something out of the norm happens, it attracts our attention and it's like, how could that? Because it's so out of the norm and that's what draws us to the serial sure, killer and the. Be in line with that, that anything different catches our attention. Catches our attention, it, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, just a, it's a perceptual, fundamental perceptual thing. Anything you keep seeing over, you know, you kind of erase. Anything different, it difference. You, you notice so, it. Yeah, because something fundamentally true, yes. So, so people, for example, on a, on a Facebook or Instagram comments, people ask me this all the time in, in the work I do. There'll be 50 great comments and two negative, but the people will ignore the positive and focus on the negative. And I always give that answer that it's the, it's so abnormal. That's why it's drawing your attention. It's like, how can people think like this? You know, the current things that are going on with racism and the awareness now, it's just this, how can people do this kind of, because it's so out of the norm. Yeah, so society has a constant train wreck. They, a car wreck, but you're always, you know, where's this going? What is this about? We're naturally drawn to it, but, you know, we're wired to be drawn to it because these are things that can harm us, right? And you better know about it. And so if you don't have that, you're completely naive. And then exactly, you're in danger's yeah. way. So there's the wiring okay. part. Is that so? That's so. You've got to learn about it. So there's a fascination to learn about it for protective instincts, for tro- kind of getting rid of that toxic energy or that whatever. And then also because it's so out of the norm. So there's a multiplicity of reasons why we get drawn yeah. to it. And, and some of it's wired very early. You know, that's why Plato was correct. Socrates, Aristotle, everybody. Well, you know, for the last 2,500 years, what most of you've been handed is not true. And Plato has it. We're born with these things. He didn't know about genes, but he knew about the about instincts and about those ideal things that are in our head. And he turns out over the past 15 years of neuroscience and cognitive science, we know that he was right because when you're born, you have an innate sense of beauty. You don't have to be shown what beauty is. An innate sense of fear, an innate sense of swimming right in Rome morality. You have to be taught this stuff. And it will normally develop. You don't have to be taught. So people, especially parents and then teachers in society, churches, synagogues, government, they always say, we're going to create you. You're not going to create. All you can do is screw that kid up. You're not going to help. That kid is going to free run. Okay. And just don't harm the kid. That's the thing. You're not going to help. Just let him go. Let her go and be themselves and, and they'll be fine. That's, you know, not everybody will because there are some things that happen, but by far, Letting them be themselves is, is really the most productive thing to do. And because we're all tuned different and our sense of danger and interest is different, well, you, you find that niche and uh, that helps you survive and thrive and, and really enjoy you know, the, the planet. And, and so, yes, I agree with you're saying. And those, those things work together for sure. I mean, there's a bit more to it, but not too much more than what we're saying. I think we gotta we put our arms around a large chunk of that. 
Are you missing out on your favorite show because it's not available in your region? Trying to keep your private time private? Well, let me introduce you to NordVPN. If you're bored with Netflix, why not take it for a spin in the UK? Using NordVPN and a click of a button, you can do just that. No need to travel to Japan for your favorite anime when NordVPN brings it right to you. With 5,000 plus server options, no show is out of your reach. Using my link, http forward slash nordvpn.com cleaning up your mental mess, you can receive a huge discount on a two-year plan plus one free month. Of course, you all love to watch your favorite TV episodes at once, but privacy is a big deal too. NordVPN keeps your information encrypted so that you never have to worry about your IP or location getting out. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive websites and malware, even if you download an infected file. Threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. Don't forget, there's literally no risk to you with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Check out my link at http forward slash nordvpn.com forward slash cleaning up to get your subscription started today. The link and details will be in the show notes. I think that's fantastic what, how you've explained that. And I think it's also just a, a what you said, the nurturing thing in the beginning, the way you painted your story, your, the way that your the matriarchy and your father, your patriarchy in your life mm-hmm. brought you up was to allow you to find yourself, but also to give you boundaries that recognizing the what you needed and allowing you to function within that en- enabled you to direct your energy in the right way and to use your traits in the correct way. And you ended up being a massive contributor to society, but it could have gone the other way if, as you say, it, you you were abused emotionally or didn't have those needs met. So it sounds what you were saying, someone who's got that psychopathic or sociopathic, which is, and maybe you could define that for us, but if yeah, you sure. have either of those tendencies, it's in, the nurturing is incredibly important to help release the ability to direct that that energy in the right direction and you you know you, you talk about leaders as well and having those kind of tendencies so could we could we do that just in in i mean there's so much we can talk about but just to kind of bring this discussion well, our yeah, first I mean, uh, our first of many discussions i hope to yeah. an end let's talk about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath yeah. and then everybody just, in every group has a different definition They're all okay different. I'll tell you i one, see that yeah <laughs> that's what i'm asking you <laughs> And it's more Cleckley, and this goes back a long way. That person who described it first, Cleckley, wrote first about psychopaths. But the, the idea is, the way to look at it, is what we've been talking about as a psychopath. Now, psychopathy, these personality disorders, you think you're right. You, know, you think your, your thoughts and what your actions are the right things. In that sense, they're moral, right? Because you know, so this I do this, and a lot of you know psychopaths do terrible things. They'll not think that's immoral. They don't have, there's nobody there, so they they think it's you know it's, it's just what happened. And and so the the psychopaths who are created early, and you have to have it looks like you have to have the right set of genes, and then be abused or abandoned early. That combination will then set up a lifetime of, of terror, and. And it can either be narcissistic personality disorder or psychopathy or some other pernicious thing. But that's wired early. And so the, so the kid ends up thinking their urges and actions and thoughts that are very antisocial are okay. And so in that sense, 
they're not immoral at all. A psychopath's not immoral. And, you know, when they do something, there's no sense of anxiety or remorse. You know, a psychopath's caught doing something and they get away with things with the police, anybody, because they have no tells because they don't feel really guilty. So they'll say, you know, and so they get away all the time, either from being caught by a mate. You know, they'll, the, the, the old line of who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes, right? But also with the police and everything. And I knew growing up, one of the things that I think the adults, some of the adults around me saw from the time I was young, I would do things. We'd, you know, we'd just get involved in stealing cars. We'd always bring them back, you know, simonized and full of gas and everything. We did all these, a lot of things, starting fires and everything. But it was never with an intention to harm, but it was there, right? And and I never had a sense of immorality, but other people did, right? And so there's something wrong with you. And what, what was wrong? Not that I was a little boy being a bad boy, making, you know, explosives and, and you know, doing all sorts of stuff. It, it was that I thought it was okay, in which I really did. It was just for fun. I was having fun. Now, so when I got caught doing things, and it would always one of those guys that would organize over teenagers and in college, hundreds and thousands of people to mob around and move around and torment the cops. And this happened all the time, but it was, it was never to cause destruction ever. Right? But it was fun. You know, this was like fun. You saw it so, as fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it would, I think it would bother me if I thought somebody somebody's going to get hurt. So it was all, but people do get hurt. Right. And but I, but to me, it was like, well, you know, those are the odds. You know, that's, that's the way cookie crumbles. So, whenever we, that would happen, and I'd be caught with the others, they'd interview me because they said, "Well, there's that he's the ringleader," and I talk to him and make cops laugh, and they'd always let me go. And other and other friends, we spend the night in the cooler because I didn't have any anxiety, any sort of lying tells. Like I didn't care. That's a key thing. This makes psychopaths one of the things that makes them so dangerous is that they don't have tells, or they, it takes a long time to find those tells. Expert liars and, and, and manipulators. Now, and they show no remorse. There's no remorse, no guilt or anything. And they, what they think they're doing is a matter of morality. It doesn't, it's not even a factor. Now, a sociopath is usually something like the young loser, the person who thinks he's a young loser. He's mistreated. He's bullied. He could be or she could be eight, 10 years old, they may or may not have the genes for this, but they're bullied early and they spend the rest of their life getting even with the world or the person or group of people who, who they see as causing them and their family or their country great pain. This is where terrorists come from. This is where the, the sociopaths are. They always say, because there's a reason for it. And when they're caught of doing something, they do have remorse. They do have anxiety. And they're easy to catch. But what you often see is like a older psychopath gathering up young, pissed off kids, right? Teenagers. That's what Charlie Manson did. You know, they always tried. I remember in creating the story in the news cycle back then with Charlie Manson. These are just your average middle class kids. They weren't at all. These were prostitutes. They're all druggies. They're, but, the, you know, they, they tried to make it seem like this is your kid next door. They weren't. And these were people who, like Charlie, was abused early and came from some bad genetics. We don't know, but we can tell by, you know, everybody in his family. He was a psychopath, probably. We don't have the scans and everything. But but the people, his family, were sociopaths. And they were pissed off they're going to get eaten with society. A lot of times when you find that, for you know, like these, these kids, you know, these shooters, 
Well, they'll go and find their tormentors, and it could be it could be little geeks, and so they go get all the football players, or they get you know, and and or they'll hate people that they see as their tormentors. So if there's the good-looking country club guy, even though he's never done anything, he represents that kid in college that either a wouldn't date me, or b bullied me, or you know all of these things. So they become uh, icons and in, in, in means in their head. And they spend the last rest of their life hating him and getting even. You know, the guy, you know, the young boy always liked the blonde girl with the hair part in the middle. And she embarrassed him and they wouldn't go out. Or, you know, nothing. He, here's the guy that's going to go around making life very difficult for blondes with their hair part in the middle. Because these are the tormentors. That's more the sociopath. Sometimes those can be treated. They can be treated with cognitive behavioral therapy. And not all of them, but then they may tend to out of it. Psychopaths pretty much is untreatable. I know there are some couple of groups who say, well, it's treatable, but it's never lasting. You know, you can temporarily change. It's like watching Oprah Winfrey gain and lose weight over 40 years. You, you can't say she doesn't have a, a great mind and a great willpower. She does, but she goes through the cycles, you know, and, and, and this is true with uh, people with you know, with psychopathy and sociopathy, they'll go through cycles of this need to maim and manipulate, and and it follows, a, you know, like a rhythm in their crime sprees. And so there is this imperative, almost like it's an addiction they have to fill. And so that, and these are the real dangerous psychopaths and sociopaths. And these are not the people in the bar that tries to pick you up with swooning you with stories and you know, all that. I mean, there's a lot of those, or the per- person at work who's always met, you know, messing with people. But they can be psychopaths, and that's where you're going to find them. But they may not be full-blown, fully dangerous ones that can ruin your, end your life. So now looking at that, now I, in my personal case, because you had asked me this before and I didn't answer it, is like, how did I deal with this? So once I had been diagnosed and had all of this, I, I went to the two psychiatrists who work with closely, and they say, what do you think? Now that you know this, I said, I don't care. I don't give a shit. They said, that's your problem. You care. You don't care. You really don't care. And I don't. Okay, so that's the coldness of it. it, it part of the coldness of it. I really don't care. It's not that I don't care about anything, but I don't care about that. And, and but I, So what I tried to do, now knowing enough about this and being enough of a narcissist and a jerk, you know, in a way, my, my wife has other names for it, but she knows. And we've been together forever since we've been 13 and married forever kids and grandkids. So, and, and, and she understands she's a very strong person. So to her, unlike the other pet dog, that's a, a misbehaving pet dog in the family. And then sometimes I can, I won't slobber or anything or embarrass her. So, but at any rate, so what I said, I'm going to do, I, and, I, and I thought to myself, now that I had been diagnosed and I came back, I'd given a talk with the prime minister of Oslo, his bipolar in, in Oslo, and had and showed how we do it, how we have these techniques to find out the genetics and for these different disorders. And and that's when I first found from all these psychiatrists who heard the talk, this public talk, and they were the prime minister. They said, you know something? First of all, you're you probably a bipolar and you don't even know it. So you're just up all the time. I got right about that. But he said, also, we want to talk to you afterwards. So I went and met with them after the talk for about three or four hours, we're drinking together. And they all were just kind of analyzing. At the end, they said, you're probably really close to being a psychopath. It's the first time I took it seriously. This first time. 
And I, all the other times, so when I came back home, I said, I'm going to fix this. I said, I'm so good at what I do. You know, this is a narcissism. I'm so confident. I'm going to use my no, no narcissism to beat myself. So I'm going to be my own, I'm going to be the predator of myself. And this is what really went on. I said, I'm going to beat this. But it was still, it wasn't me trying to be good. It was me trying to win, you know, except that I was the enemy this time or the, you know, the opponent. And so I spent uh, the next couple of months every day in my interactions with my wife, making sure, because I had studied, I started to study my friends who were in the same position of me and noticed that they were doing good things selfish, selflessly and without anybody noticing. And I said, ah, they're really doing it for good. And they're not doing it to get anything. They're not, there's no con there. So I said, okay, now how do I do this? So what I did was I watched what they did. And, and, you know, they were good roommates. They're good mates, not just good lovers or husbands or something like that. But they were, you know, when it came time to clean up, they would help to clean and cook. And, you know, when I poured the wine, when I pour wine for myself and then bottle of my wife, I started to do the opposite. I started to pour hers, wait, and were patient. I must I went on every day. And, and I had to cognitively do it. And, and and enforce myself and was driven mostly by narcissism, but also kind of as an experimental test subject, just the science of it, right? And could I do it? Could I do it? And so I spent a while doing that. And after two months of doing this, which was doing other things too, not, not just right roommate, friends, but when she maybe had her aunt died, I'd go to the funeral. I never do that. I would always come get up an excuse and end up at a bar down in Newport Beach. You, you know, it's a dive bar down there and tell them, well, you know, I, I had a heart attack or something. And I started to go to all of these events that a normal person goes to. Funerals, wakes, pains, ass things to me. And I started to do all of them. Well, at the end of two months, she goes, what the hell has come over you? I said, what, what do you mean? She goes, well, you're like a really nice guy. She says, you're like the guy I knew, you know, when we were 16 or 12 or 18, you're like a really nice guy. And I told her, I said, look, I call her D. I said, don't take it seriously. This is just an experiment. I'm trying to see if I can do this and to manipulate myself using my own narcissism to do it. And she said, keep doing it. I said, you don't care that it's phony? She goes, absolutely not. So I just like you treat me better. That kind of floored me. I said, is that it? People just want to be treated better. Respect. Nice and simple things too. Some bigger things, but very simple things day after day. And that's how I did it. And I, but the thing is, you know, it was, it was three and a half years ago. I started four years, yeah, four years ago. I still have to do it every day. I have to think about it. it does not come naturally. So, it, and what I found out, and I tried it with other people I knew, friends and kids, they all noticed this. And then I broke the code and I said, no, it's just, you know, it's just me being manipulating myself and everything. But they all were very happy with this. Even though it was phony in that sense, they said you're trying, you're doing it, and you're, you're really acting better. And I, I don't act badly. I'm just don't act. No, but you know? you, you, I love what you're saying. And just to to sort of summarize what you're saying, and I just want to respect your time. And I want to say that we need to continue this conversation. I'd love to invite you back on this podcast. But for for this particular time, I want to actually add power. Uh, what I think is another layer to what you've just said. It is powerful how you use your own. Ability to self-regulate, to actually self-regulate yourself. And I want to, my research has been in the non-conscious, conscious mind, brain, mind stuff. And one of the things that I have spent years researching and, and teaching people through my practice and 
whatever, and research and books and techniques is this when you have self-awareness and when you self-regulate, you yeah. can use, you're using your mind to retrain your brain. Your brain just has to do what your mind tells it to do. And you kind of, even though I'm not talking about, you know, it's separate, but inseparable. So you've, you've, you've actually done that. You're, you chose to be self-aware. You chose to use your, you've been almost harsh on yourself to use your narcissism to manipulate yourself against yourself. Only way I could get put in there you know but it's but it's a positive thing you've actually done a really positive thing you've actually shown the power of a a beautiful mind a desire to to actually change you've used your mind to change your to literally change your brain and one of the things i've researched is how long does it take to change thought you know people always talk about 21 days and habits which is nonsense neuroplasticity as you know the field of neuroplasticity habits don't form in 21 days which is just a myth it actually takes at least 63 days with in cycles of that so you your friends and family started noticing after about nine to 12 weeks and you constantly have to work at it so you've really as defined how we as humans can take whatever character trait that's come through genetically or whatever, and we can actually, with our minds, change that. And it does take time. It does take effort. It's a continual process. Yes, your case is slightly more extreme, but you've done an amazing thing and it's a story of hope. So for me as a scientist, I'm looking at you and listening to you with fascination and seeing a case study in action of someone who has has self been self-aware and self-regulated. So I want to say, that's amazing. I want to congratulate you and, and say, do you like like one of my just listening to you, I feel like the research I've done is, has been fulfilled. You know, so thank oh, you so well, much. I love it. No, I love what you've said, and I'd well, love to interview you more. But I have another interview to do, so I would love to invite you back on the podcast. Sure. I think it's been amazing. I think you've absolutely what you've done is, is is a message of hope. You may not realize that, but it is a. Tr- that's why people are so fascinated to hear your story because you're giving hope to people. So I want to say thank you for that, even though you may not have. Yeah. Thought about I mean, it like it that. It turns out we're not. I thought, I always thought we were our genes, and it turns out I was wrong. You can overcome your genes. Yes, you can overcome. But ex- you got to stay at it. You can't you can it's stay not at like, it. It's not like losing 20 pounds and then going back to your habits. I have to do it every day. You so have to do it every day. Mindful. I have to be very mindful of it. And, and that's it, amazing. It, it, yeah. That's what for 38 years I've been teaching people that you've got to, you can, your mind can overcome your genes and you've yeah, got yeah, to be added. I, I didn't even realize this was going to go this way, but I'm so excited and I want to thank I you. I would never have believed <laughs> you've, it. I was, the, you've, I was the poster boy to all my colleagues and friends of your genetics set you and I absolutely wrong on that one. Well, now you might post a boy for how mine can change brains. So I'm so excited about that. So thank you for your brilliance, your time. Great talking to you. And if you want me back, if you want. I would love to. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.
This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.